Welcome to Let's Get To, the baseball show from the fans' perspective. Now here's your host, James Christopher. And welcome to Let's Get To. I'm your host, James Christopher, and we have a busy episode for you today. But first things first, I want you to take a look at this palace that we are standing in. This is a palace for minor league baseball. We are at Dr. Pepper Ballpark, home of the Frisco Rough Riders. I'm rocking the hat and the t-shirt, but this place is gorgeous. And what a better way to celebrate Armed Forces Weekend than at a ball game. You're going to hear me talk a lot about military service in the, in the coming episodes with this episode and then Memorial Day and then Fourth of July a little bit later on. But I want to do a shout out to all of my brothers and sisters that are still wearing a uniform and are still doing the job. And I want to do a special mention to Ryan Adair. Uh, he is the son of one of my best friends on the planet, Eric Adair, his wife, Tammy uh, Eric was serving the army with me and somehow he gave birth to a squid. Yes, right. His son is a graduate of Annapolis and a naval aviator, and he is out there right now doing the work. So we want to do a shout out to him and a shout out to all of his brothers and sisters that are wearing a uniform, no matter which uniform it is. These young men and women, they basically write a check to the American government and to us paying the order of their we're a family show, their rear end. So this episode is dedicated to you guys. Stay safe. Stay, stay together out there and know that back here at home, we have your back. Like I said, great episode today, so stick with us. Let's Get To presents Tearing the Cover Off, the Baseball Book Club. All right, so we're excited to welcome back to Let's Get To, friend of the show, Paul Caputo. Uh, you know him as the obsessive uh, ice cream Sunday helmet um, collector, also writes for sportslogos.net and the author of The Story Behind the Nickname. Um, and it's funny, Paul, that we're having you on because I don't know if you saw this, but someone posted on Twitter, why are we not talking about these great minor league names? And a bunch of people tagged a bunch of people saying we have been. Um, why did you dive into this so heavily of being so interested in and what is, I think, a resurgence of minor league baseball branding? Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm, I'm a Phillies fan. As you know, we uh, have engaged on that in, on, on Twitter and uh, um and in, in, I remember it was in 2010, uh, the Phillies had had that sort of unprecedented run of success that ended with uh, Ryan Howard's Achilles exploding in the uh, last game of the NLDS against the Cardinals. And uh, they then started a what I consider a very precedented run of not success. Uh, and so uh, my background's in graphic design and I love baseball. The Phillies, you know, were not doing much to hold my attention. And so I started really getting into um, this, you know, like you say, this resurgence of sort of wacky minor league baseball logos. And I particularly noticed in 2008, the uh, Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that's a wacky nickname and it's a cool logo. And I didn't think too much about it. And I remember thinking like, what, you know, what, what does it even mean? Like, what, why are they called the Iron Pigs? Like, surely it's not from nowhere. Right. And... Uh, so I called up the team and I, I actually started a blog. It was called bloggers to be named later. 
uh, don't go to it because it's uh, I we let the the URL lapse and it's been uh, bought up by some unsavory types who keep trying to sell it back to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, you know. So anyway, I started a blog. Bloggers be named later, and I would just call minor league baseball teams. Uh, and like the Ironville, uh, the, the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs were one of the first ones. And I was just like, what, is, you know, where's the name come from? And they told me, they said, it's a, it's an inversion of the pig iron that we forge in the steel mills of Pennsylvania. And I thought, well, that makes sense, right? Like they inverted that word and made a, a an awesome steel pig logo. And I just thought, I bet you all these unbelievable names out there, the Montgomery Biscuits, the Carolina Mudcats, like all these ones that were already there in, you know, the early 2000s. They must have awesome stories behind, you know, why they're called what they're called. And so I just literally, I found minor league baseball people so accessible. I just yeah. start calling front offices and say, you know, why are you guys called this? And, you know, they would, I would be on the phone for 45 minutes to an hour sometimes. Um, and then I also started calling the designers. And so, you know, the Brandios guys, Dan Simon, Todd Radom, I'm in all their phones, right? Like they know, <laughs> they know what I'm calling. <laughs> um, and uh, and so you know I was writing I was writing about that for a little while, and uh, Chris Creamer in two, in 2014 noticed, and uh, he said, "Hey, why don't you come write for me instead?" And I was I was already a fan of his site, and uh, that was a no brainer. And so I started writing for him, and I feel like the uh, just it's just sort of followed its own path since then. I, you know, I'm grateful to Chris for giving me a chance to do that, and I've really enjoyed writing about minor league baseball. The book, um, I want to talk about the book first. It's great. I love that you um, have some historical background for the teams that, that are in here. I love that you also made an effort of showing old logos and and alternative looks and things like that. When did the idea for the book come about? Well, I was writing one of these articles a week, basically, starting in 2014. And I was trying to get basically all of the affiliated teams. And I realized when I had, you know... 60 or 70 of these, I was going to reach a point where, you know, I could very easily publish a collection of 100 of them. And so the idea for the book basically just came from the, pu the pure stubbornness of writing, you know, article after article after article. And I kept waiting to sort of get tired of it. I kept waiting to think like, oh, all these stories are kind of the same. And they never were. It was always right. something interesting and fun that I was learning. And so, you know, when I realized I was going to reach uh, 100 articles, uh, I thought I should start putting a, a book together. And uh, and then I, you know, I went to Chris about it and I said, Hey, this is something I'd like to do. And, and he said, yeah, absolutely. And he wrote the foreword for it. And, um, so, you know, it, it was really just, you know, started out as just a blog where I was pursuing a passion, you know, something, you know, the combination of baseball and graphic design. And also, as you see behind me, ice cream. Um, and it just, you know, just became something I was having fun with and it was a passion project. And when I was able to compile, you know, what happened was I had about 130 of them by the time I got the book finished, and it was way too big. It would have been way too expensive on, on Amazon to try to sell it with 130, so I had to scale it back. So there may be a volume two because I've been, you know, I've been continuing to write these, and so there's 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 more to put out there. Um, your heart, anybody that follows you is obviously in this brand of baseball. I know you love your Phillies, and I'm sure you were so excited for our interview a couple of weeks ago with our <laughs> – mental skills coach well, that was neat um, absolutely yeah Hannah was great I, I did ask her i think either before the interview she's gonna fix the bullpen and that was for you my friend oh but, man thank you um, well we could have used her last night they gave up six runs please i'd love to not hear i'd love to not hear about bullpens for professional teams right now <laughs> it's fair, it's i'm fair, not okay. sure the astros brought one with them um you know but what you've done because you 
you know as well as I do that this this these are brands and these are logos. These are also people, and we're, yeah. we're you've created a time capsule for in many ways a part of the game that's just not there anymore because of contraction and all that stuff. Um, where do you see the sport going? This level of the sport, where do you see the brands going? Do you see Major League Baseball kind of ratcheting down the wacky, or do you think that that for us as fans, is it going to be relatively unchanged as we go forward? Gosh, that's it's a really good question. And first of all, you bring up the people, uh, and you know, and I mentioned earlier that um, you know that that minor league baseball front offices were just so accessible uh and i've gotten to know so many great people in the industry and you know i'm you know i mean you know we know some of the same people and and you know well folks in minor league baseball are so so yeah i mean one of the hardest things about the last year and a half you know between covid and the the reorganization of minor league baseball has been seeing you know people who you really respect and like leave the industry basically yeah. um so from a branding perspective, you know, I think you're going to see that it will be somewhat scaled back. I do think Major League Baseball's involvement. I think we're seeing that already with the Beloit Snappers. Uh, Brandios uh, was working with the Beloit Snappers, and they they were narrowed down to five nicknames that were all pretty wacky, and um, they pushed off their rebrand by a year, and they basically said that it was because of Major League Baseball's involvement. Um, so I'll be curious to see if, you know, those five nicknames that were in the name, the team contest, you know, are, are just discarded if the, if Beloit just goes with something entirely different. Um, the Appalachian league that we just saw nine of the 10 teams in the Appalachian leagues, their re their rebrands were done by, uh, so this is, you know, this obviously already, but for, yeah. you know, if people aren't following it closely, all 10 of the teams in the Appalachian league were named for their parent clubs. Um, they lost their affiliation, though they are still in a collegiate summer wood bat league that is run by essentially by Major League Baseball. So Major League Baseball stepped in and worked with the teams on the rebrands. The rebrands, I think, for the most part, were, were, were good. Um, I liked most of what they did. But nine of those 10 rebrands were created by designers at Major League Baseball. Um, mm. The 10th was the Burlington Sock Puppets, which was created by Dan Simon who is responsible for the likes of the Hillsborough Hops and the Savannah Bananas and, you know, so many great, you know, brands out there. Um, so I think what you saw was brands that were, were pretty good and, you know, unique to their local community. Um, but outside of the Danville Otterbots and the Burlington Sock Puppets, fairly conservative. Um, so I think that you're going to see more of that in minor league baseball with major league baseball involved you know, they've got their hands in the pot, basically, with, with minor league baseball right now. Um, Let me interrupt. Do you see, though, like, it's interesting because, um, and everybody's mileage will vary. I do think the Appy League, we like you said, we have nine of ten teams. I do think it's just probably the strongest league right now as far as brands. I actually sort of prefer, I, I'm, I'm way more into, like, the Flyboys and the Doughboys because of historical connection than maybe sure. the Autobots or the Sock Puppets. Do you see Major League Baseball going that direction? Or the thing that I think you and I talked about already was the cringeworthy moment when the Hudson Valley Renegades, Renegades were so proud of their pinstripes. And I'm like, well, that's just great. You're going to be <laughs> – so are, do you see it becoming eventually the Hudson Valley Yankees, or do you at least see some degree of autonomy as far as the branding? So I don't. I, thankfully, I don't see, you know, 
the major league teams or major league baseball overall stepping in and trying to sort of enforce their brands on their minor league teams. My, you know, my theory as to why major league baseball got involved at the level that they did is that they saw the value of minor league baseball teams skyrocket. And one of the reasons I think that minor league baseball teams are so valuable is because of the successful efforts of the branding. Um, you know, the, the Braves and the Cardinals were sort of famous for being the two major league teams that just all of their minor league teams were named for the parent clubs, with the exception of the Memphis Redbirds, I guess. Um, and I think that they saw just through this really amazing branding that minor league baseball teams were taking on of their own volition, um, and, you know, also new stadiums. I mean, there was, you know, there's been a sort of resurgence and in interest in the minor league baseball experience. But I think that the value of these franchises is so high now because of the branding that they've done that I think they'd be insane, you know, to to walk that back. Uh, you know, I, I do think what I think is you're going to continue to see unique brands, but they will be less wacky, right? Right. You'll see less of, you know, the Rocky Mountain vibes, you know, less of an anthropomorphized marshmallow and and more of the doughboys and the flyboys um the state liners you know those are just more sort of conservative still unique to their local community that's my prediction so essentially um to put it in, in sort of a, a movie parlance everyone who thought disney was going to buy star wars and change it too much was missing the point that disney bought star wars because star wars is valuable major right. league baseball converting everything to four different levels of the astros isn't smart for them to do that Right, exactly. No, I think they see that. I think they're good business people and they see the money that is to be made in unique minor league brands. And What about things like Copa? Do you see Copa surviving? That's a really good question. It's a really good question. Um, maybe this is just wishful thinking. I will, I will say I do because I think it's a successful program. I mean, if you look at a team like, oh, again, one that I'm wearing, the Albuquerque Isotopes, they have sold so much mariachi's gear, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think from a pure mercenary perspective, they would see the success of that program and, and know that, you know, they've doubled the amount of merchandise they can sell through these, you know, very good brands. I mean, the thing about the Copa brands is they're they're very good, right? Like these these logos are, are terrific out there. And um, I, I think. You know, I'm not attributing any goodwill to Major League Baseball for this, but I will say that from a mercenary perspective, right, that they would there's value in continuing that program, and so they will, as long as our interests align. Exactly, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> One of the questions uh, uh, as we wrap up, you got on um, Twitter: Is it an ice cream sundae if it's just scoops of ice cream and a helmet? I'm going to say yes. I say yes. Any any time you put ice cream in a helmet, it's a it's a helmet sundae. The helmet is the extra ingredient that makes it the helmet Sunday in my mind. Um, but, you know, I always keep uh, like a packet of hot uh, chocolate sauce in my wallet in case I need to pour some on to make it a... a, a you know how bad I wish that was true? I really do. I wish, uh, you know, can Hershey's get like, on like, <laughs> like ketchup style packets of, hot, of chocolate <laughs> sauce? How great would that be? I just imagine you like the guy that sells watches on the street corner, but it's, a, it's like, what are you, maraschino cherries, my man? Is that what? I, I got some caramel. I got some jimmies. Like, yeah, what do you need? What do you need? What do you need? Uh, here's Paul Caputo. Paul, where can people find the book? So the there's a hard copy version and there's a Kindle version. They're both on Amazon. Um, the links are in my Twitter handle, but you can just search for the story behind the nickname on Amazon. 
And we will put the links down here. Paul, we'll have you on in a, a little bit later on in the season just to check in. But thanks so much for jumping on Let's Get To You. And thanks for being such a good friend of the show. James, I love your positivity. I love your attitude towards baseball. I love the podcast. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Thanks for being a voice for, for optimism and joy on Twitter. Uh, Twitter needs more of you. From the bleachers, the Let's Get To Game of the Week. So this past weekend, Jessica and I headed up to Frisco, Texas to see the Rough Riders at Dr. Pepper Ballpark. I'd been before, but this was her first time, and I was hoping she'd get a good impression. Now, when you show up to see a baseball game in Frisco, this is how you're greeted. Now that, my friends, is how you enter a ballpark. Like I said, this was not my first time coming to Dr. Pepper Ballpark, but it was Jessica's first time, and I spent the entire drive up building up what a palace to baseball this place really is. A palace is the perfect word for it. I hope it met her expectations. It's a state-of-the-art ballpark surrounding the greenest grass you've ever seen. What stands out for me is the concourse. It's all deliberately built with the same architecture that gives you a feeling like you're traveling to classic Americana to watch America's pastime. We both made the joke that it felt like Hannibal, Missouri from a Mark Twain novel. It was that perfectly built and that consistently built. It lacked the hodgepodge feeling of some ballparks as those ballparks expand or change architecture look bit by bit. Jess, by the way, thought you needed a behind the scenes shot in case you wanted to see how the sausage was made. Great sight lines characterize watching the game. Every spot in the house has a great view from behind home plate to the suites to even if you're just walking the 360 degree path around the park. The fan experience here is one of a kind from the proximity to the batting cages across the back of the concourse to the bullpens that are essentially built into the stands. Where else do you get that level of access? One of the highlights of the park is the lazy river. You float around right field and watch the ball game. And the way it's set up, you never lack a view of the game, no matter what side of the lazy river you're on. This would have come in handy on some of the games I've attended when it was 115 degrees in the shade. The Rough Riders were celebrating Armed Forces Day, complete with some classy looking OD green uniforms worn on the field. They definitely will win one when they go up on auction. But they also took the time to recognize vets from all five branches, doing it a branch at a time. A classy move all the way around. Members of the United States Army. We've been to three parks so far this season, and as we emerge from the pandemic, the vibe we're getting people are just glad to be back. How you doing? I'm, I'm Brad Baskin. I'm from Garland, Texas. And yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be coming to these games again. It's been a while since I've been here, probably a year and a half. It was a very strange year last year, but you know, now that we're back and I haven't even seen the new stadium for the Rangers play yet, so I'm looking forward to seeing that as well. But uh, go Rangers, go Riders. What baseball team are y'all a fan of? Uh, Rough Riders. Rough Riders? I like the Dodgers. The Dodgers? Oh, well, let me just go, just kidding. <laughs> What are you guys excited about baseball being back? Um, the ballpark. Yeah? The ballparks. You guys, you got your gloves? You ready for a foul ball? Yeah. Did you already catch one today? Uh, we've got one. You got one for your little sister? Yeah. Awesome. That's awesome. Will you guys enjoy the game? You too. 
By the way, the father and daughter playing catch on the concourse was everything I needed to see to keep my soul full. So it's time to head out soon, and like all good ballparks, this place really pops at night. Check out the Rough Riders at their baseball palace. Make it part of your must-see travel list if you're someone who travels from park to park. Just an amazing time. We can't wait to get back. Thank you to the good folks from the Frisco Rough Riders. Show me the merch. The best from the pro shop. So welcome back to Show Me the Merch. We're actually at Dr. Pepper Ballpark right out front of the Riders Outpost. It's time to do some shopping. Let's go. We had a great time running through the pro shop and we were able to pick up this really sweet replica jersey from the Rough Riders. It's their cream home variant. I'm in love with a cream jersey. Um, I was gonna buy a Longhorn cream jersey, but my camera person slash wife said no. And so here it is, this is marital revenge. Now I will say this, um, right now the Riders are wearing uh, their Armed Forces Day uniform, which looks to be a Kelly Green jersey with red and white and blue up the sides. I've said on Twitter before, I'm not a fan of the camouflage thing, throwing your team's logo on it, and now we're honoring veterans. To me, it's the easy way out, uh, but I actually love that look. I think it's subtle, I think it's respectful, and if they put them up for option, we auction, we will get one. So again, great stuff. Visit the writers online. You can get all of the great stuff that we saw at the Pro Shop delivered to your home. What's better than that? Holler and a Swaller, a chug of Ballpark Brew, presented by The Hitter Sports. Just sitting here in the Bull Moose Saloon for Holler and a Swaller, presented by The Hitter Sports. Follow him at The Hitter Sports. He's behind me, isn't he? Teddy Roosevelt, many people consider America's greatest president. Again, I'm in the Bull Moose Saloon at, Ball, at Dr. Pepper Ballpark. They have a great entire enclosed bar here with TVs. And having been here before when it was 120 degrees, and I'm not exaggerating, maybe by a degree or two, this was a great respite from that to come in and, and feel some cool air, get the breeze flowing. And I'm drinking a Makers on the Rocks because you can also get hot liquor. We're actually gonna go to St. Paul, Minnesota and Andrew Nelson. How's it going, Andrew? Hi, Jim. I'm here at beautiful CHS Field for opening day with the St. Paul Saints. I've got a Lower Town Lime Lager from Tin Whiskers, which is a brewery here in Lower Town, St. Paul, where CHS Field is located. And uh, here we go, holler and a swaller. Who's on first? The Let's Get To Local Nine. Brought to you by Zoomer Sport. So we're excited to jump on to Let's Get To, one of our favorite teams to follow. You guys have actually, uh, Brad and Denning from the broadcasting team of the Cleburne Railroaders. Y'all were on last year. We've already had Alan, part of the new ownership group, on this year. How excited are you to finally be back? Let's first of all talk about it. Baseball is back, period, after not having it last year. How stoked are you guys? I don't want to speak uh, for Brad, but with how weird 2020 was and 
being on the sidelines for the, for the first time in, in a long time, it was a strange experience. So the fact that opening day is, is here again, it, it seemed like for a long time it was not going to get here. You know, like you're, you're just flipping the calendar pages, just waiting and waiting. And then all of a sudden it's, it's tomorrow. And uh, you know, I, I just think back to the excitement that we had in 2019 and I cannot wait to have that feeling in the ballpark again and be a part of that. Yeah, James, it, it, it was interesting. Last night we had a meet and greet for our season ticket holders, our sponsors, our host families, where we introduced the team. And uh, I was asked to MC that event. And I literally, the first thing that I told the fans once we got started, I said, you know, after, uh, you know, a over well over a year, baseball's back in Cleburne. And it was a huge eruption. I mean, the, the fans are, are really ready. Uh, the the climate here is a very uh, – it's – people are very eager for baseball, you know, especially with the way that 2019 ended for us and literally just on the doorstep yeah. of the postseason, that close came down the final day. Uh, there's a lot to be excited about. Our fans are excited and we're just uh, – we're ready to get it all started. And hopefully when I come up there, I don't bring a no-hitter with me again. Like Let, let's time. try not to do that. Let's try. I'll try my best. You know, I think it, it goes without saying to the strength of your team and to your brand that you now remain or you now are the only true independent team in Texas. You've had some got elevated and, and some went away. Um, how cool is that, though, that you, you, you really were able to survive both this whole madness with contraction and all that stuff on the affiliated side, but also the fact that you guys were able to keep things together through the pandemic? Well, that, that really speaks to the, the strength of the ownership group here in Cleburne. It all starts with John Junker and Darren Udaley. And then, of course, the additions of Alan Miller and John Ryan over the offseason and uh, their willingness to, to really find creative solutions uh, to allow the railroaders to, to remain afloat uh, during a really tough time financially for a lot of minor league baseball teams. I will say that I'm sure all of those names I just mentioned would prefer that we not be the only uh, independent team in Texas. You know, we, we would love to have some regional rivalries, uh, some other teams down here in the Lone Star State uh, that, that could join the American Association and, and kind of form a, a little bit stronger of a Southern branch. Uh, I know the American Association has, has done a great job adding strong franchises up in the North, but uh, we're excited to have some, some Texas brethren down here sooner rather than later. I'll add one little opinion to that. I also think the work uh, that we as an organization have done uh, during the pandemic away from baseball, really trying, trying to stay active in the community uh, with some of our different efforts like our home plate project and some other things to uh, assist in the community and let people know that, uh, yeah, we're a baseball team and that's great, but we want to be more than that uh, as we represent our brand uh, uh, through different branches within our community. So uh, hats off to the ownership group as well for, for leading in those efforts. And now we get back to the game that we love. Uh, you're wearing all of you, both of you guys are wearing some of the new look, um, you know, following rebranding is a big part of what we do in the off season. And there's always hit and there's always miss I'm not sure I've seen something hit as widely as the new looks for you guys. I think I dropped something like 300 bucks immediately. Uh, it was my birthday week. I was able to get away with it. Um, <laughs> it it's not even like it was a bad look before, but this is really a great classy look. What do you guys think of the new branding? Well, to me, it really harkens back to the, the history of baseball here in Cleburne and 
what's so cool is that story is one that a lot of people don't know. You're talking about 1906. So history that far back when it comes to professional baseball, gets very fuzzy to begin with. Yeah. But you've got legendary figures that were a part of the, the 1906 championship team here, like, like Tris Speaker and Dode Chris and other guys who went on to play in Major League Baseball. And there are some stories that deserve to be told off of that era. And this rebranding, I think, goes a long way to kind of drawing interest toward towards that era. Uh, it, it is, like you said, kind of a classic look, a throwback look. Uh, that harkens back to that day. And there's there's some of the minute details that, that folks might not know that uh, were really done into paying effort and paying homage to to, to some of the things Denning talked about in terms of um, the, the numbers on the back of the jersey matched yeah. the railroader numbers, you know, so it's... Uh, well, the one for me of- was when I saw it, um, before I read about it, the number on the pants. And I told my wife, I said, I haven't seen that since the Astros of the 70s. And you go read right. and it's like, yeah, that's... What that's an homage to. I love that. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, even down to the finest detail, I think that's pretty neat uh, uh, in our, in some of our uh, secondary logos. In fact, like the hat that I have on the, the train tracks around the, the, the top, uh, around the panhandle portion of the state. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I, I think it's really been a hit. I think it's something that our fan base is really drawn to quickly and, uh, it gives us it gives us that fresh look uh, as we as we go into 2021. I know we've got uh, our whole team's coming not our whole team. A lot of our teams coming Saturday, including one of our contributors from Minnesota. And he's so excited to get Texas stuff on. He can't even he can't even handle it. We got to get him some Texas barbecue down here as well. Uh, we've got Massey's barbecue at the stadium this year in 2021. So he, he can't come down here and not have a taste of that. Yeah. We'll, go home full. we'll get it. We'll get him home full. Uh, let's talk about the on-field product. What I love about talking about independent folks is you guys control your rosters. You guys have players that you're excited about. Um, who are a couple of guys we should be watching? You know, I think it really starts in our starting rotation, which is going to be headlined by two former major leaguers. We expect Logan Verrett to get the ball for us on opening night and then Michael Marriott on game number two. And uh, those guys have done everything that you would want a veteran presence to do leading, not just on the field by example, but also they, they've really established themselves as clubhouse leaders as well. Uh, the position player group is pretty similar to what we had in 2019. A lot of the all-stars are back. Uh, John Nestor behind the plate, Zach Nerrier in center, Chase Simpson at third. And then we've added a former batting champion in a leg Lago. So it's it's on paper right now, but uh, we love the pieces that we have in place. Yeah, I'm really excited for Cleveland fans to have the opportunity to uh, experience that trade for Ale Lago back in 2019. It was probably the blockbuster trade of the American Association, and because of course the pandemic, yeah. railroad fans haven't got to see Lago at the depot yet. So uh, he's going to dazzle some folks. He is a guy that. Uh, expect him to hit 340, 350 without blinking an eye. He's going wow. to spray, spray the wow. ball to all okay. parts of the yard. No pressure on None, him. none whatsoever. Gauntlet look, laid look, down. That's, Let's that's, do it. That's the beautiful thing about baseball. The numbers don't lie. Look at his numbers. He, he can do that. Uh, I, I fully expect him to do that here uh, at the depot. You know, people people want to talk about the birdcage and that being a hitter's park and, and – 
in Sioux Falls. Well, I think he can do some damage here at the depot here. It's those that when he puts the ball in the alley, he's going to be able to run. And you'll see a lot of extra base hits from Le Lago. And then that's going to pay dividends for the guys in the middle of the order for the Chase Simpsons and the John Nestors of the world. Look out Grant Buck as well, a rookie of the year candidate back in 2019. I think he's going to do some big things. So I think one through nine, this offense definitely has the potential to put up some big runs. And then that just pays dividends for the pitching staff. When you can pitch with a multi-run lead, you're far more comfortable. And yeah. And then a lot of times far more productive. So uh, this Cleburne team going into 2021 on paper looks really, really strong. So as we kind of close out this, um, you guys have both dedicated a large percentage of your life to this game. And uh, it's been weird. and It's been unsettled. What are you guys looking forward to? I know that we're out there on Saturday. We're going to drop this episode on Friday, but your opening day is actually tomorrow from when we're recording the interview. What are you guys, from an emotional standpoint, most looking forward to as far as you as you getting ready to call the opening night game? You know, for me, baseball is about sounds. Um, I just, I love the sounds of the game and I've missed them so much. You know, this will be the first live professional game that I've seen since the end of the 2019 season. We had youth games out here in 2020, but the the sound of like, you know, ball into mid, bat against ball, the crowd on a, like a high fly ball. It doesn't even have to be a home run. Just hearing like the ooze and the odds of like a yeah. pop up the left center, uh, here in Cleburne specifically, we've got the train horn. Whenever, uh, there's a great player, a home run, our public address announcer, Jeff Smith is as good as they come in his voice, uh, that just carries in this stadium. So it's just, it's just the sounds of a, of a live atmosphere again, of baseball being played. I think it, the minute that that hits is is going to feel like home again. If I've learned one thing uh, through the past year plus in this pandemic, it's you absolutely don't take anything for granted. Uh, as someone that's seen every game in this stadium uh, from day one, to have it back when there was a time, quite frankly, we didn't know if it was going to come back. To have it back, uh, I will definitely be emotional tomorrow night from the first pitch. Uh, it'll be um, – It'll be special, to say the least. It, it will probably uh, remind me a lot of 2017 when it all started that first night against Winnipeg. Uh, we expect this crowd to be electric tomorrow night and loud. And uh, I think it will very much, not that we know what postseason baseball is like in Cleburne, but I think it will be as close to a postseason feel as you can get. And to have that in night one, uh, I think that's pretty special. So it's, it's going to be it's going to be a lot of fun and, and a memorable night, to say the least. Who's on first? The Let's Get to Local Nine, brought to you by Zoomer Sport. So we are super excited. Those of you who follow the show remember that I unveiled an incredibly sweet cap on the week of my birth uh, from the Cap City Cobras, and we're excited to have Matt Bowers and Seth Kessler from. The cats, the Cap City Cobras, on our show. Uh, first of all, guys, help me with the psychology part of this. I am terrified of snakes. My first confirmed kill in the army was a baby rattlesnake. I put thirty M4 rounds into. Why do I love your brand so much, though? It's weird, man. That's that's funny because I also have a, a crippling fear of snakes. <laughs> and the way we became the Cobras is, uh, I don't know if you remember when the Cobra got loose in Austin. I do remember that. <laughs> and so for those terrifying three days where we were all paralyzed by that Cobra being wherever it was in the Home Depot parking lot, obviously, 
Uh, but at that time we were trying to come up or we were trying to change our name because at that time we went under uh, Arena Domingo, which is a really bad translation of Sunday Sandlot. But we were playing on Sundays a lot and it was uh-huh. confusing. And so we were just like, we gotta change this name. And somebody suggested the Cobras and that's, that's how it is. The Austin Cobras is our inspiration. I think that's brilliant. Well, then let's talk about, let's go back to the beginning then. Let's go back to Sunday Sandlot. Uh, guys, y'all can feel free to, to, to step on each other. And, and I know you guys, you know, pretend like I'm not in the room. How did this start and why did this start? Well, we, we can't really take credit for it. It was started by uh, the founder of the Cobras, a guy named uh, Will Thompson. And he was uh, kind of an Austin uh, cornerstone for a long time. And he always talked about getting baseball back in his life. And one day he said he watched Ken Burns baseball, got a little drunk on whiskey, got weepy, like he always knew in Ken Burns baseball. And then the next day he went to play against sports, bought some real terrible catcher gear, about two bats and, you know, the weirdest balls you've ever seen and texted everybody in his phone. And then that is, that is how we started the team or that's how he started the team. And then for about a year, we just met on Sundays and drank a couple cases of PBR and then just played baseball with the most eclectic group of people you've ever seen in your life. And, and that was just awesome. And then one day he came to work, uh, he was attending a bar and he was left at the bar and he said, I'm going to baseball practice. And somebody from the East Harden Arrows, who we didn't know at the time, yeah. East Harden Arrows was at the bar and they go, what do you mean you're going to baseball practice? And so he explained what he was doing. And then he came to practice and he goes, hey, we've been offered a game and somebody in the back, I'll omit the, the expletive, but they go, are we a team? <laughs> and that was a real defining moment because we had never really thought about actually playing a real game at that point. And we had been meeting for about a year out there in that field. And then, and then we, so we, then we started playing games and then we lost for two years straight and it was excellent, terrible baseball, but really showed us that, you know, you gotta love the game. You gotta put your trials in. That's what I was going to say. That set us that, that, that defining moment set us on a course of like a multi-year losing streak mm-hmm. that like, um, unfortunately <laughs> was broken, you know, a, a couple seasons back <laughs> because that could, we could have been something special, you know, mm-hmm. but. But yeah, we had a lot of guys wearing chain wallets in the outfield at that time. Several <laughs> weapons on the field. Not, no guns, but knives. You know, and so it was, just, it was a weird group of folks from, from around Austin, and we just weren't very good at baseball. But we had a lot of fun. Seth, and, talk to me a little bit about that, though. Like, um, the organic part of it. I mean, look, I, here's the thing. I'm in my 40s. I'm a former military. I watched a couple. I thought the Hardenino is actually my first Sandlot game ever, and I just thought to myself, I wouldn't be able to move for a week if I played a game because y'all play hard. Uh, what's the motivation behind doing it? Well, one, Matt and I both have our PhDs in sport management from UT, and we're big, we're big believers in adult sport outside of, gym, outside of gym and gym culture. And so we look for like alternatives in that regard. And so that is a, that is a big driving force between us to give people, and you know, there's not a lot of sport options for uh, people after high school. You know, they just say you're done playing sports now. And we I think, I think Seth, the term he's looking for of, I'm sorry, Matt, he's looking, the term, the term he's looking for is men of a certain age. Um, <laughs> I appreciate that. But, but how about you, Matt? Like what's your motivation to get up every Sunday and go scrape it out? And, and like, by the way, you guys played during the dead of summer. Oh yeah. And black. Yeah. yeah. We do that. Black. Why, I'm not, we're, we're still not sure why we do that, but we do <laughs> it. as long as it's daylight savings, we're playing pretty much. 
Um, and, you know, it's funny for me, I have a, you know, Seth has much more of a baseball background than, than I do. I actually stopped playing when I was nine or 10, probably. Okay. Um, I, I was more of a basketball guy. I went that direction and played basketball and coached a bit of basketball. And, uh, and I, baseball was not really a, a big part of my life until I came back to it through Seth. You know, what we were studying together at UT, he was telling me about this um, squad I guess we could call us uh, <laughs> of folks. And he's like, look, there are dudes that are worse than you out there. I guarantee it. So come on, just come. It's fun. We'll play. And I mean, for this is my fifth season going into my fifth season. And it has been the most rewarding sport experience of my life. And I've been around pretty big time sports over the years. And this never before have I felt just that jo- that childlike sandlot joy of of playing and showing up and getting better at something when you're almost 40 years old which you know we don't often do you know yeah. it's usually pretty pretty much downhill from a certain point and uh and so it's been really fun we are you know and, and Seth when Will moved on Seth took over managing the cobras and carried on that legacy of inclusiveness of good vibes only. And, uh, and we've got a great team that is mixed age, mixed gender, um, mixed ability. And it's just this kind of really nice little ecosystem that we've created. And um, yeah, like I said, it's the best, it's the best sports experience in my life. It's weird for me because um, like I said, at the beginning, I went, um, obviously I devote a certain percentage of my life and money to this sport that I wasn't able to play much beyond my sophomore year of high school. But, you know, as an Astros fan, last season was miserable as you can probably imagine mm-hmm. and getting to go to see you guys play, or it wasn't actually you guys, but a Sandlight team play in, in March was like manna from heaven. I mean, it was like getting in touch with what matters to the game. And I, I speak to that part of it though, uh, Seth of the like the mixed ability like it doesn't matter as long as you're down to play right well and that's the thing like my my saying is that there's no scholarships or contracts coming out of this so you know so so it's like you know we don't like we don't want people that are screaming at each other we're gonna, we're gonna make errors we're gonna strike out all these things are gonna happen and, you know we, and it doesn't hurt help anybody to scream at it and so the idea is that you look for good people, you know, with good vibes and people who are just, you know, like solid humans. And that's like kind of how we built our team. I mean, we plug in like if we need if we are desperate for a player, we can go look for a true player. But, you know, we always, always just look for the people that will fit with, within our culture more than they will be the best player on the field. We have turned we have not let people on the team because their attitudes were just too, uh, I don't know, aggro or whatever you want to call it, you know, too competitive too like, you know, expecting perfection from their teammates and stuff. And that just doesn't happen in baseball and particularly our brand of baseball. <laughs> right. Yeah, You know, it's um, it, we're at an interesting moment um, in, I think the trajectory of Sandlot. So it's sort Austin has been this epicenter, right. Where thanks to, to Jack Sanders and the, the Texas playboys, and then us Cap City Cobras and the East Austin Hardineros you know, kind of number of years ago, getting this thing kind of kicked off, it, it became really popular here. And um, Seth, what are they, f- 
14? How many teams are there? There's locally? 14 Sandlot teams now. We were the third in Austin. And like, we just thought nobody would ever care to watch us play or anything like that. And then over time, like you said, more and more people showed up and more people got interested. And then, oh, what, three years ago, three new teams showed up out of the blue. And we're just like, oh, that's awesome. Because we've, we've been being beat by these other two teams for years. So now you can get beat by other teams. Yeah, exactly. You know, maybe win one here and there, you know? So, <laughs> And then that just kind of manifests as a lot of things do. And a lot of people saw like the organic nature of it. And we weren't trying to, weren't trying to make a buck that much, you know, just trying to stay afloat, so to speak. And, you know, just really encouraging people to get out and play, you know. The thing it reminds me of, um, and, and I think what, what I think is cool about it is it reminds me of the town ball thing in Minnesota, where it really is, uh, there may be a little bit more, they take it more seriously than I think, you guys do but that's very austin right like you said as long as we can stay afloat we're going to keep doing it because it's fun yeah yeah and, and speaking of minnesota shout out to um, one of our sponsors pillback pillbox bat company who does some really cool stuff if you're not if you're not familiar with them really beautiful beautiful bats um yeah it is you know and as I, was, as I was kind of getting ready to say thinking about this it's like it's grown so much in, in, in a relatively short amount of time, it was like a long time with just a few of us. Mm-hmm. And then it's kind of blown up and, and from Austin, it's, it's spun out to Oklahoma, to all over Texas, the Pacific Northwest, you know, kind of everywhere. And the interesting challenge I think we face right now with it is you've got these new teams coming in who are well-intentioned, but who are, they ramp up the, you know, the runway to, to being really good, really fast, you know, bringing in lots of different folks and ringers and things like that. And so Sandlot has always kind of functioned on this, uh, this sort of like unspoken code of kind of balancing abilities and, 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 and I'm not saying we've, we've crossed the line or whatever, but it's interesting as some things become more popular as more people want to be involved. I think we're running into, um, that challenge of, okay, this is starting to look a little bit more like a standard adult baseball, men's baseball league or whatever, um, at, from time to time. And so that's an interesting observation. And, and uh, you know, I, I can see why that's a concern because it feels very Austin, right? Like Austin has grown and changed fast. And as it's grown and changed, it's becoming something completely different than maybe we all remember it being. Yeah. And I, 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 at least you guys are smart enough to be cognizant of that's where it can go and you can keep it from getting there. Yeah, I think I think credit to the genius, the, the wisdom of the crowd, I think, with with the folks who run the hard narrows and the playboys and the cobras and all that, um, where we don't keep standings. We don't keep any any sort of league table or anything like that. We certainly keep score in the games and we certainly play hard and try to win games. It is not like just rainbows and butterflies and chasing things. It is, we're, we're serious about it when we're in it. But I think that is, has been one of the most genius moves to not force this into a standard league structure that looks exactly like everything else because it, it sort of freed us from that, that looming like, okay, well, the playoffs are coming and we got to do this. It's like, no, yeah. we can just take each game as it is, enjoy it for what it is. And um, and build something without having to see what we've built in terms of a, a of a, a standings or anything like that. Whoever came up with that or just made that decision, or maybe it was nobody. That was that was a brilliant move because it's helped preserve this this energy. 
Well, let's talk about you guys playing again. I presume you guys either have or have had significant others. Do they get it? Do they get like, hey, listen, X number of Sundays a month or however long it is, this is what I'm doing. And are they, I mean, are they cool about it? Do they like it? My, uh, my, my, my fiance, she is totally supportive. She comes to most of the games. She watched those two years of losing alone a lot of times, you know, like, and just would just sit there and like shake her head at our poor play. But, uh, and she's, uh, but she's awesome, you know, like, and that's another thing. She comes up, she goes out, plays catch with me all the time. We hit fly balls to each other and stuff like that. So she's a very supportive and, you know, and there's a lot of social engagement too with the other people in the crowd and stuff. So um, at least she kind of works as like almost an ambassador of the crowd to kind of explain what's going on and why, you know, you know, things happen the way they do or whatever's going on with the squad and stuff. So she has been more than supportive and like encourages me to get out there. I think also because of my health, you know, like to go get off the couch and go do something, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I think it is a real, uh, uh, you were talking about going out to the long time and watching a game and you can see what a uh, just kind of family vibe it is. You know, there's just, uh, it's something my son comes out to, to all the games and practices and, my wife will come out to most of them. And yeah, it's just sort of, this is almost like our extended family that we've developed over the years. And so it's, um, yeah, there's no, there's really no, there's no pushback on on yeah. most of our ends, I don't think. Well, I, I tell you what, when I stumbled out and it was like the perfect thing I needed for my soul. I know it's very, you're not supposed to get romantic about baseball, but um, all right, well, let's wrap it up with this. I'm going to let Seth take one and then Matt take one, both logistical questions. Uh, Seth, how often do you play and how can we find out when and where you're playing? So we, uh, so we're right now we have a kind of an abbreviated schedule because of with the, the city wasn't open up the fields yet. So we kind of like do that, but on our website, we have a, uh, a capcitycovers.com. We have a schedule page and we post all our all our schedules there. And we try to put a little like teaser out um, on the Wednesday before our games and afterwards. Usually our wonderful, our wonderful, wonderful artist, uh, Thomas King, who designed Matt's shirt, this hat and everything Cobras wear. Uh, he's beautiful, but he also makes all our flyers and things like that. So he always puts out good art and things like that. So that's where you can find all our games, our Facebook page. And uh, basically our website is the clearinghouse for everything, though. Okay, Matt, then second part of the same question. Uh, You'll have some of the best swag. Um, I guess we go to the website to find that stuff. Yeah, or you can actually go to um, pillbox.com as well, or pillboxbatcompany.com. I should know these answers, but I don't. Um, I'll I'll find it for the graphic. Yeah, you can can get it through their site, or you can get stuff through our site as well. Um, And and yes, follow us on Instagram. That is where we do. That's where Sandlot lives. Um, and that's where Sandlot has kind of weirdly enough sort of taken root and grown. And I think where a lot of people, you know, we get a lot of, a lot of messages on, uh, on Instagram and folks who are interested in playing or coming out to a game or whatever. And so that's a uh, cap city Cobras baseball on Instagram. And so mm-hmm. that's where you can find pretty much all the things you need to know, about, probably more than you wanted to know about us. So, <laughs> all right. Well, our entire history on that website as well and about us. And I just want to say one more thing. Yeah. Uh, the Sandlot would not would not succeed without the support of our local community and our partners and our sponsors around there. We've had great support for people just believing in the idea of the game. Circle Brewery is a huge supporter of ours, and they help us out through the beers, but also just through like you know believing in our product and believing in us, you know. And then as well as like Workhorse Bar and uh, Backlot Bar, those guys have been they were our first sponsors, you know. That we would never had uniforms without those guys. So 
I mean, that is how like it's kind of grown as well. You, you leveraging our local our local people, you know, and our local sponsors. It's been awesome. Uh, I, I'm so glad I found out about you guys. I cannot wait to get out. Uh, that is Seth Kessler and Matt Bowers from the Cap City Cobras. Thanks so much for being on Let's Get Two. Right, thank you. Thank you. Let's Get Two presents In the Dog Pound, a look at the Portland Sea Dogs. So we're excited to be in the dog pound with Emma Tiedemann. We are continuing our focus on the Portland Sea Dogs. Emma, first of all, um, I listened to the first two games on the broadcast, did a great job. Um, I do know like you were kind of like, sorry, the result wasn't the best, but how much fun was it just to be back in the booth? Oh, it was awesome. Um, it was a day that I've been long awaiting. Um, and yeah, we did lose on opening night, but then we won five in a row to close out the homestand yeah. uh, with a ton of home runs and stuff. And so it was just the perfect way to start it off. We had, you know, sell out COVID crowds, um, you know, as much capacity as we could have. And, uh, you know, it was just well worth the wait. You know, speaking of that, um, I know that you're obviously you're, you're a Texan, you're aware of what's happening. Um, where are you guys as far as that now? I know most of Texas, it's like no more masks at all. Um, how is that working for you guys up in Maine? Actually, um, as of last week, um, we got word that we we're able to open to full capacity um, starting May 29th. Um, and that it's a little bit different than Texas. Um, don't want to get political with it, but um, you know, our governor gave us that clearance and gave the state of Maine, you know, no mask indoors if you've been vaccinated. Those little those little things, um, just because 70% of Mainers over the age of 18 are vaccinated. Right. So it's a little bit different than Texas. I mean, and granted, Maine is a smaller state, but um, I think that people have been doing really well up here with the vaccinations and social distancing that the numbers are showing it and that um, it's it's safe to open up. It does feel like at least, um, you know, I'm still wearing a mask in a lot of places. And um, but e- even just reading it was like, at least it feels like we're not going to backslide now. Maybe we are actually heading toward good news. Speaking of good news, um, Sea Dogs are on the road now, but it'll be back next week, starting on the 25th. What can we look forward to at the ballpark? Well, we've got our first bobblehead giveaway. Um, This was originally slated for the opening series, but rain. Um, So we had to push it back. So uh, we're giving away Bobby Dahlbeck home home run counters. So um, you can kind of keep tabs as he continues to hit home runs for the Red Sox. Um, And then we've got fireworks. We've got a superhero day. Um, So it's kind of, it's more of a normal sort of homestand looking with fireworks and giveaways and that sort of thing. Um, And and it's just really exciting too. I wanted to ask you about some of these promo days. You've been around this game a long time and promos are a big part of minor league baseball. I'll give you some backstory Um, on Twitter because people are always super normal there. Um, an Astros beat writer chose to mock a little girl dressing up for Princess Day on Twitter. I don't know if you saw this. Um, can you just explain to people that are watching the show who maybe don't understand why are these days so important? All these promos that we do. Absolutely. And I actually did see that on Twitter. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it just, it makes baseball more accessible to more people. It, it takes it, you know, it, it makes it more of an experience. You have the baseball diehards, people like me who, if I go to a, a game as a fan, I would love to grab a beer and, and keep score. You know, you, I just love baseball. But then you have little kids that might not be entertained by a three hour long nine inning game. Um, and so that's why we have princess and pirate night. Uh, and we do bring out princesses to the ballpark and we, you know, embrace the fact that we are, we have a platform to do a lot with, and it just adds to 
a fantastic product on the field being with the Red Sox right now, but then off the field as a fan, you can go anywhere in the ballpark and have a totally different experience wherever you walk, just because of how the promotion is set up and how vast it takes over the ballpark. So yes, we're a baseball team. We are a baseball stadium, but for minor league baseball, and it's cool to see major league baseball now getting into it like the Astros did with princess day. Um, it just adds to the experience and, and adds to the wonder of walking into the ballpark and imagining what you'll come across that day. Yeah. And I think the hope is that, you know, she comes for princess day or he comes for pirate day and, sits down and pays attention for three innings and it's like, Oh, this is awesome. And that that's how you build fans in the future. Right? Like the whole idea of criticizing, it seems so old man, get off my lawn. I can't even really wrap my head around it. Exactly. And you know, right now we're changing rules and doing all this stuff to, to make this game cooler for younger fans, because that those are the fans that are kind of dropping off according to stats and numbers and stuff. But, you know, we're trying to, to do that at this level and, and try and get the three and four year olds into baseball and want to go to the ballpark. Maybe they're not there for the game quite yet, but they'll remember that experience that they had seeing bell or, I don't know, even know any other princesses, but you know, a princess at a ballpark and then she sits down, watches the game, some a home run happens, and then there's her memory. She wants to go back to the ballpark. So yeah, I and I don't I don't understand the tearing that down and tearing down that joy of having a young fan fall in love with going to the ballpark. Well, everybody just remember as of twenty fifteen, Princess Leia is a Disney princess and I'm here for it. Let's get she's it. Like, um last question. Princess. I can't believe I forgot her. Yeah. <laughs> um and it's funny that that's how that works now. But last question for you. You know, the Red Sox have, are actually um the big league club, and you guys are a longtime affiliate of them of them exceeding expectations. They are ahead in the AL East. And I think everybody thought they'd start fading. They seem to not be fading. How much does that excitement for the big league club carry over to people getting excited to get out to see you guys? I think it it, it definitely trickles down because Red Sox nation is a very passionate fan base, whether they're at Boston or they're with Greenville or Salem, they know what's going on in their system. Um, And so I think with us personally, having the number one prospect in Tristan Cassis, absolutely smash baseballs in Hartford this last week. I mean, Nesson was all over it. Red Sox fans were all over it. I think that it just adds to the excitement of coming out to the ballpark and seeing these Red Sox players, future Red Sox players that really have that potential and have that it factor um, that, you know, sometimes prospects can be a little iffy, but um, we have a couple of them here that have been just absolute lights out, whether it's on the mound or, or at the plate. And it's just, just good baseball to watch. And, um, to also be watching a big league club that is, you know, turning turning heads and um, proving doubters wrong every single night. Uh, it, it's kind of infectious down to the down to the affiliates. Well, we're a bit excited to watch you guys. We'll keep listening. She's Emma Tiedemann of the Portland Sea Dogs. Thanks so much for jumping on, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks for the next round of homestands. Sounds good. Let's get to presents into the maze with the normal corn belters. So we're excited to jump back into the corn maze with our friends at the Normal Corn Belters, speaking to brand new general manager, Matt Durkin. Matt, congrats on the promotion. Thank you. It's uh, it's definitely a nice accomplishment, but just trying to get back to work and make sure we're all ready for the season starting next Thursday. See, this is how you're, you can know you're a climber. You've just celebrated your 
your promotion for 37 seconds and now it's time to get back to work. Um, yeah, you guys are kicking off on the 27th with the prospect league schedule. And then on the 30th with the KCL, I know you guys have been tweeting out today rosters and, and, and with, I know the blue caps have come out already and I've seen the, uh, the sloss, um, a little bit about just, I mean, how excited are you to get back? I mean, what is the vibe down there or up there about, about everything? Yeah. So it's nice to have baseball back with, We've been having Heartland Community College playing here. We've had some high school and other colleges playing at our stadium, but um, you always think it's nice to have our guys playing out there. So come next week, we're excited to have the Corn Bolters play the first few days and then have the KCL start Sunday. But with rosters being wrapped up now, that was probably what a last big checklist we've had on our list. So we're excited to see what this next week holds. You know, anybody that goes to cornbeltersbaseball.com and takes a look at the schedule, uh, y'all don't have a lot of off days. Um, what is your plan to lead your team through this season while also making sure you don't burn yourself out? Yeah, so just trying to make sure like our part-time staff and our interns are kind of rotated in and out where they get a break every two or three days, whatever it may be. Um, it's definitely going to be a long summer, but uh, we're excited about it, and we're just going to have to take turns, give off days where it's needed, and to make sure everyone can stay as happy, healthy, and well-rested as possible. So apparently, um, load management doesn't just apply to my aging left fielder for the Astros, but it also applies for a new <laughs> general manager of the normal Corn Belters. Yeah, so um, you hear load management all the time in the NBA, which is ridiculous, but um <laughs> We're just going to do what we can um, and help our front office staff members, uh, our part-time workers and interns. On top of our managers and players, they need breaks too. Um, can't throw pitchers out there every day. So yeah. we're just going to give everyone as much time as they need and make sure we can be as prepared nightly as possible. I want to go over a couple of the, the theme nights in the first three weeks. Um, you know, our plan is to basically have you on once a month and look at the season in those types of chunks. And first things first is Monsters Inc. Night. Um, I don't know that I've seen this before um, at any other level of baseball. Uh, talk to me a little bit about what we have planned for that. Yeah, so we were thinking about things. And, um, of course, we have a lot of family-friendly corn bash nights, but none of them were really Disney. You have that superhero in Star Wars that can play under that umbrella. Um, but we thought we see a ton of teams doing Disney nights, so why not try it? And with um, it being the 20th anniversary of Monsters, Inc. coming out this year, we thought it was a perfect storm. And to be honest with you, it's my favorite Pixar movie, so it kind of okay. plays a little more into my hand. But um, between our um, Frisbee giveaway, the specialty popcorn we got going on, um, not sure if you've ever seen Tyler's Amazing Balancing Act, live in person at a game before but he's awesome he'll be at the game um and then to wrap it up we got post game showing a monsters inc on the scoreboard so stefo oh, would wow. be a pretty busy first corn bash night but it gives a good um representation to new members of the community what a corn bash night is that having a race in person it's funny you said monsters inc is your favorite pixar film i was thinking about the movie up no one's gonna have up night right like it's just Everybody, <laughs> yeah, everybody just come depressed to the ball game. Um, you guys have done this before, the rubber ducky thing. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of that? Yeah, so I'll be completely honest with you. It was 
um, before Christmas and July night. And we were just like, what's a cheap and easy promotion we can get done and ordered really quick because everything last summer, which was such fast paced. So we decided to call it the giveaway upon giveaway. So everyone in the door gets a rubber ducky that's numbered from one to a thousand, depending on how many we do a night. Um, and after every inning, we do a giveaway. So that could be a uh, past bobblehead, a hundred cash, a uh, Disney plus subscription. Oh, uh, TV perhaps. So we give a lot of local restaurant gift cards. Um, it's just a great way to not only get people in the door early to get those, um, we can help raise some funds for a few nonprofits by selling more ducks throughout the night. And that's a great way to get different community members and businesses involved that want to donate um, their time or products to kind of get their name out there as well. So it's kind of a really unique um, way to promote different community members, help raise funds for nonprofits, and be a pretty cool giveaway um, by the end of the night. I I think that's awesome. I didn't realize that it also came with the idea of winning other stuff and then the idea of buying more. You're right. You've basically done the 50-50 raffle, but put a much more fun spin on the whole thing. Yeah, for sure. And um, it was pretty unique. So last year we did it where the first 300 people got duck. And then we sold another 300 out of our duck pond um, and donated all the proceeds to charity. And we would sell out of the ducks within five, 10 minutes. People got really involved in it. And um, one lucky fan, she actually won the $100 cash multiple nights we did the rubber ducky. <laughs> but she got, she really loves the rubber ducky idea. Um, but we thought we'll bring it back one night, kind of make a charitable night of it this year and um, just get people excited about it. Two more big ones. Um, one of my favorite ones, and, and I've done this, at, I did this at the Sugarland Skaters last year, uh, your Margaritaville Jimmy Buffett night. Um, I'm a big parrot head guy. Um, I have seen him multiple times. Uh, what can we look forward to on that night? Yeah, so first and foremost, have to get the cheeseburger margarita specials for the evening at a discounted rate. Um, yes. And then we do have um, dueling pianos will be performing that night. So they'll have some island music and Jimmy Buffett. Um, hits played over the piano and speaker throughout the night for fans. Um, we have a sunglasses giveaway from Tropicana. So we get some pretty cool sunglasses as they walk in the door. And then every night, it's great. Ends with fireworks. So a lot of post game fireworks played the so Jimmy Buffett's greatest hits um, that the evening there. That's so cool. Uh, last one that we'll talk about in this little, little setup is your find Bigfoot thing. I just think it's interesting because um, for, for next week's episode, I already recorded an interview with the Spearfish Sasquatch. And they were like, we didn't know Bigfoot would become a thing again when we invented this, this team. <laughs> um, where did the idea of doing find Bigfoot come from and what exactly happens that night? Yeah, so it's one of those things where we we know the typical ones in minor league baseball that are going to do great, like Star Wars, Superhero, Margaritaville. So that's kind of like Monsters, Inc. too. We're just trying to experiment with different ones and see what will work. Um, so Find Big for Night was honestly one we just, during lunchtime, um, back when <laughs> us were joking around about. And the more we thought about it, we're like, hey, this could be pretty unique. So um, all I'll say is it's going to start off with a mystery koozie giveaway um, of some different, you could get different corn belters or KCL team koozie as you walk through the door, completely anonymous. Um, and then after that, you'll just have to come out and see what's going to happen. 
Well, we can't wait. Um, Matt, I'll be out there on June 26th. We're gonna have you on before then to talk about what that next group will look like. But, you know, again, thanks a lot um, for coming on, being a part of our show. But we also want to congratulate you again on being a GM. I know, um, I know how hard you worked for it. And it's always nice in this industry to see nice guys finish first. And I think you really have. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been nice to kind of share this journey with you guys. Um, Because from the start, you were the first people that would go on Zoom or podcast, whatever it is, um, and talk about us. And the more that picks up, you're still going to be my favorite for being the first one. So thank you as well. Ladies and gentlemen, please adjust your scorecards. We have a special guest in the lineup. So we're excited to welcome one of the best people that I know from the Bird app from Twitter. Um, and, And I say that, Emmy, knowing that most people on Twitter suck. But you're actually more than you're more than awesome. So it balances it out. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. And people can follow you at Miss Miss Steal Your Base. I will put your link down here. But uh, lifelong Yankee fan, tell me a little bit about just when you got into baseball and, and how you came to be a Yankee fan. Uh, I, it's probably because of my dad. I mean, he's been a Yankee fan since he was a little kid. He used to sneak into the stadium in the '70s when it was a lot easier. I think. My favorite story is he would say, because, you know, security is so much different now from me growing up in the 90s when we started winning again. And it was, you know, tickets skyrocket, price skyrocket. But he said in the 70s, he used to go with his brothers and they would ride their bike all the way from Long Island to the Bronx. And they would just point out a man in the crowd. They'd run up to the ticket where they collect the tickets. And they'd go, they'd ask for the ticket and my dad would go, oh, yeah, that, that guy right there, that's my dad. And they'd go, all right. And they'd just let them go. And then they'd just run and like pick a random seat. <laughs> so like, that's how my dad grew up. And then I think that I really started understanding baseball and becoming a fan in probably 95 when, I mean, obviously the Yankees started doing well again. My dad would let me stay up late. I was 10. So he would let me stay up late and watch the ALDS when they played Seattle. And even though we lost, it was really exciting for me to see how excited my dad was. And and now you're a mom. I mean, are you passing that on to your kids too? I mean, is that part of the fun? I'm trying. Um, I have a four-year-old son. He's more interested in watching Blippi and he wants to be a zoologist. So, <laughs> but he always does. My husband's a big Cardinals fan. So I, okay. I do have him saying, let's go Yankees over let's go Cardinals. So that's the first battle. <laughs> the funny thing is, is as an Astros fan, I definitely let's go Yankees because I still have <laughs> nightmares about those Cardinals teams. Uh, but, you know, those 90s Yankees teams, those were fun. And were. I, I remember being deployed uh, in Bosnia, and the sergeant major that I worked with, worked for, with, for, um, was a big Yankee fan. And him, like, pinning a medal on me, telling me, and these were, like, the 90s Astros with Biggio and Bagwell, they will never accomplish anything that I was <laughs> never – I was like, well, thank you for that. Yeah, those were fun teams. Yeah, they were. I think probably most – Yankee fans my age would say 98 was one of the greatest years. That was, there was nothing wrong about that entire year. It was perfect from beginning to end, I think. And my favorite player of all time is Paul O'Neill. So yeah, Uh, no, his his prime years were. Let's talk this club because I think this club's a lot of fun too. And there's a lot of my favorite baseball players on that current team. Um, I'm a big Aaron judge guy. I do know that I, as you know, I did change my loyalty as far as favorite Yankee to to 
the mustache. But uh, who are some of the guys he on this team? He shaved it. He shaved his mustache. Are, breaking news. We need we need that sound effect. What? Breaking news. Mike Ford shaved his mustache. <laughs> Dear Aaron Judge, you're back. Please forgive me. Welcome back. I was weirded out when I saw Mike Ford's mustache. It's not like a regular thing. I don't know if he was trying something new, but he shaved it off. And uh, I'm pretty sure, I'm sure Yankees Twitter will yell at me if I'm wrong, but after he shaved it off, he got a very clutch single the other night to help us beat the Nats. So I'm okay with the mustache being gone. <laughs> at least, you know what, do you remember the story a few years ago when Bregman shaved his mid-game? Like. <laughs> Like, I know superstition's a thing, dude, but that's razor burn. Um, but who are some of the guys on the team right now that you really dig? Well, all my friends make fun of me because my favorite's Gardner. And uh, uh, I just, you know, he's the oldest tenured right now, and I love his heart. I have a really soft spot for, and maybe I think they're very attractive when they wear their socks over their pants, that old school. I love that so much. And I just feel like he's, he's a little older than me. And he, every, every game that he's in, he tries so hard and he's, he runs for the ball. He could still steal bases. He can run faster than half the team. And I just love that about him. Uh, I also really love Gary and I want him to do good. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I feel like it's such a weird dynamic with him too, because you almost feel like Garrett Cole kind of made it clear he didn't want to play with him. Is that was that the deal? Like he didn't want him to catch him anymore. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if he made it clear that it, to us it looked like maybe he wanted Higgy to catch for him more, especially last year when Gary was really struggling. Yeah. Um, I don't think he came out and said that, but it was getting pretty clear that he preferred to throw to Higgy, and now. Higashioka pretty much has the starting catcher role this season. Um, Gary has really struggled. And I feel for him because our fan base is so rough on him. And they say that he's lazy and he's not trying, but I feel like it's the complete opposite. I feel like he feels terrible. And I'm on his side. I'm rooting for him. Gary, I'm rooting for you. Let's go. <laughs> you know, it's it's so interesting to watch your fan base because some of the very best people that I've met on, the, on Twitter are um, – Yankee fan, and I would argue that I'm probably more popular with Yankees Twitter than I am with Astros Twitter. But one of the things I think is interesting is, yeah, it's tough. And I kind of get a little bit because I'm also a Cowboys fan and I went to UT. So I understand you have fan bases with high expectations and fan bases with um, low expectations. I mean, the Astros really didn't have a national fan base ever. Um, yeah. But so is it hard for you as someone who is like true blue to see some of the the people turning on them that quickly. I know it wears me out when it's our side. Yeah, it's kind of exhausting. Um, I didn't join Twitter until I think July, 2019. I had no idea what I was in for. Like I kind of, sometimes I miss not knowing what's going on all the time. Cause some people are so opinionated and so hard on these guys. And I'm kind of old school in where I'm like, and I'm a mom, so I'm a little sappy. I'm like, they're human. Maybe they're having a bad day. I'm sure Gary is miserable. Like, this is his life. He loves to play. He's miserable enough that his batting average is terrible, and he lost the starting catcher role. And then to maybe see or hear some of the crap New York says about him, it's, it makes me sad. <laughs> it makes me feel bad. We should be rooting for them to do well is what we should be doing. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I'm with you. I think especially in baseball where – 
you know, the third of the game here is out of your control anyway. Like so much of it's luck. The last thing you need to do is pile on someone. Um, Speaking of sappy, I'm going to ask you to get a little sappy. So you had the opportunity to go back to the stadium for the first time in, I'm guessing, five or 600 days or so. Um, how was it for you to finally be back? Oh, it was awesome. It was awesome. And I got to go with my brother, who is like my best friend. And it was our both of our first time since the playoffs in 2019. So it was it was really emotional. We got to go to one of the famous uh, Batista sweet games too. So it wasn't just like, we weren't just stepping into the stadium. We were stepping into like royalty. <laughs> it was a really great way to watch a game. That's awesome. It was so fun to see you get to be there. You had a photo, the photo of you look, you look just as happy as you can I think I had be. this face on the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like you're not even aware who won. You're just like, we got to see baseball. Um, <laughs> We 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 uh we had the Round Rock Express opening and I looked and they did this video and I looked over and my wife is like in tears and I thought yeah this matters to people. I even uh because I live in Baltimore now um and I love Camden Yards I think it's top three stadiums that I've ever been to and I feel like that's more of my home now just because I'm down the road I go to games by myself I, me and my husband will randomly go to games we'll watch we'll watch the O's play anybody. Um, it's a lot cheaper to go there than Yankee Stadium. <laughs> yeah. But even I went to my first O's game uh, a couple of weeks ago when the Yankees were in town. And I even got choked up there walking in there for the first time in two years. I was, you don't realize how much this game means to you until you don't have it. Well, I'm going to go to Camden next year. It's on my bucket list. So you'll have to come with us. We'll have to make sure that. You and I'll your tell husband you what joined. The hotels are and the good bars. <laughs> We're Jess and I are into it. So before we wrap up, I'm going to now guilt you into coming on to my other show in October by showing you. I think I know what show this is. <laughs> Isn't that the coolest? That is so cool. Uh, for those of you not that didn't follow us uh, in October last year, big uh, Halloween fan, big horror movie fan, and. You know, I think it's the one thing that, but that's especially you because you're a Yankee fan. That kind of has got to be like, man, when they're playing a playoff game in Halloween, it gets very touchy where your loyalties are. I actually, 2009, when we were in the the World Series, there was a Halloween night game. We were playing the, the Phillies. And I went out with my three best girlfriends and we were dressed like all the Britney Spears from one of her music videos. And they were yelling at me all night because I was staring at a TV that you couldn't hear because we were in a club. <laughs> and I was like, the Yankees are on. I don't care. That's dedication. I think when the, when the Strohs got knocked out in 18, I think the way I rationalized it was, well, at least they won't play on Halloween. And then I <laughs> went and pouted. For Mother's Day, my husband got me a collection of uh, little garden gnomes that are all like Jason, Michael Myers, I gotta, I'll, I'll post a picture of them on Twitter so you can see, but yes, I'll, I'll come back in October for sure. <laughs> you must, uh, she is Emmy, you can find it at Mrs. Steel Yo Base. Emmy, thank you so much for not even being on the show, but again, being someone on Twitter that keeps me on the app because you're that much fun to follow. And same to you, thank you so much. I love reaching out to different fan bases, new people, it's been awesome. All right, you did great, you were nervous. Go, go Astros, a focus on H-Town Hardball. All right, so we are back here with Go, go Astros, the first of two segments featuring Andy Tom Chesson. We like to call that an Andy-filled week. Um, Andy, first of all, six straight 
it looks like um, maybe the re- the the results of or or the after effects of the COVID of the COVID suspensions have finally worked their way out. Um, I, I think so. I think it's um, a little bit of Dusty or Brent Strom or somebody getting a little bit better idea of what they actually have in the bullpen and how to use it to an extent. Um, to that end, even Brooks Raley has looked pretty good in his last couple of outings. And I can say that effectively because the day we're recording this, there is no game to be played, so there's no way he can give up a run. He will not give up a run. Of course, obviously, they start the uh, the series with Oakland tomorrow, which will be finished before we drop this, such is the case of the nature of the show. Um, which is the real Astros team, though, the one that did struggle in that stretch or this one? Uh, you know, I was looking at the schedule, and depending on how you want to break it down, and I was trying to get as – not not putting too much on Jose Altuve, but uh, recognizing that this is a team that started off six and five because they lost those first two games with the Tigers with a full roster. They just got beat by better pitching. Um, then they had the one in five stretch in there where half of their starters, literally a quarter of their team, was on the IL due to COVID protocol. Uh, on the 18th, most of those came back, but you could tell the timing was off. So, you know, give them a little bit of credit. Since coming back from um, those two games in Colorado in April, the team is 17 and seven. I think that's a better reflection of who they actually are because they were playing some pretty decent competition. You had the Yankees for three, you had the Blue Jays for three, you had the Rays for three, um, and you did fare, fared pretty well. The Angels are also record notwithstanding, a pretty good team uh, when they're facing the Astros. So you have a lot of teams in there that should have presented a challenge, and the Astros played really, really well, uh, culminating with an 8-2 and two homestand. It does seem like uh, it, it almost makes losing those games to um, Detroit and to um, Colorado even more frustrating because they did really play much better against better competition. It's super regrettable because that's if you put those series, I think 10 times out of 10, um, I think eight times out of 10, the Astros win those series. Uh, So you're talking about potentially four to five games that should be towards the win ledger that are in the loss ledger against two of the worst teams in organized baseball right now. And that maybe means a three game lead in the division. Not that we care about the division lead sitting here on May 16th. Not Memorial Day yet. Not Memorial Day yet. Um, what do we think going into this Oakland series? Then and I'm going to I'm going to ask this question with the with with the following statement. I believe that the Astros are a very 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 good baseball team, not necessarily a great baseball team. Where do you sit with that? I I think it's one of those things where if you don't have a lot of perspective, you have to adjust your expectations of what the Astros are in 2021 because they're not the team of 17, 18, and 19. They're, I don't think they're nearly as bad as the team of 20 was, um, and, and that being a 60-game you know, season with all the worries of pro- COVID and the protocols and the pandemic and restrictions and everything else, um, a team that just didn't have a whole lot of fire until there was something worth playing for. When they knew they had a playoff spot sewn up, you, they kind of went into hover mode uh, with doing just just enough to show up to game is not really enough to win, and it was reflected in their sub-500 record. Uh, this year is a normal season for all intents and purposes, and so I think the sense of urgency is back to an extent with the offense. 
Um, I think we're going to still have some growing pains with our rotation. And I think our bullpen is going to continue to be a work in progress. Uh, so, you know, 94, 95, 92 wins somewhere in the low to mid 90s is kind of what I'm expecting from this team. But it's a team that should be competitive night in and night out. It's a team that should win the division still because I think their ceiling is still higher than Oakland's. And frankly, as was predicted on this um, very, very show, the rest of the division isn't great. Although to give credit to Seattle, they played a lot better than I think a lot of people gave credit to. It does seem also that, you know, you don't, you don't clear a, a three plus game difference in the standings. And again, I know it's may without Oakland also, I think falling back to earth a little bit and not against great competition, really. I mean, Minnesota, all respect to Andrew Nelson, isn't the Minnesota twins of previous seasons. I mean, to the point that there are Astros fans openly uh, opining that um, maybe Brian Buxton will be available uh, by the trade deadline for, you know, a center field hold that the Astros may or may not have. They have. Do, should, yeah, field. they do. But should Chaz McCormick be playing more? It does seem like something good happens every time he's in the game. Um, yes, probably only because I think his defense – is as good um, as Miles Straw so to say it's not great, but it's not horrible. Um, and I think the offensive upside is higher for him. Having said that, both of them really play out to be fourth outfielders in the major leagues so far in their careers. Uh, Miles has had more of a chance, and I think he's very much played himself into a eighth, ninth inning replacement, fourth outfielder, rest to starter every now and then isn't going to embarrass himself kind of guy. Um, still very early in Chaz McCormick's career. It's, uh, to be fair, it's still very early in Miles Straw's career as well. Right. But they both suffer from comparison to the outfield, the center fielder that the Astros have had for six years prior to that. Um, and, and it leads people to long for um, players on other teams that might be available because – uh, certainly Minnesota is one of those teams that you expected to be uh, towards the top of that division that it looks like they've dug themselves a hole that might be really difficult for them to get out of. Uh, the big question that the Astros will be facing as we close out May and go into June, um, both Odorizzi and Framber Valdez will be making, weather permitting, and Valdez has already been postponed, uh, rehab starts at the at, at Sugarland, at Sugarland, almost mm -hmm. in Round Rock. They're in Round Rock, the former Astros AAA club while playing as a visiting team for the current. Oh, thanks, Manfred. But um, Valdez and Odorizzi are coming back. I don't know how many rehab starts they're going to, it's going to take them. It looks like Fromber may not Fromber. It looks like Jose or Keaty might just be missing one start. It's really how it's starting to look. I think they backdated that IL stat stint. Um, what does the rotation look like when all of those guys are available? Who is out and who is in as far as who's currently starting now? Uh, you know, it's clearly a prediction on my part, but I think Garcia and um, Javier, Christian Javier, are the guys that are going to go to the bullpen and um, bolster that bullpen and strengthen some things. I think you also have Blake Taylor, who may be on the horizon of coming back sometime in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so there's some, you know, help in the immediate future. Uh, it's interesting what the Astros are going to have to do, though. I think Orkidi's safe if he's healthy. I think he's proven himself over a couple of seasons that he's worth having in the rotation. Uh, but knowing that injuries happen and it's really difficult to make it through a season without seven starters at some point on average, 
do you send one of Garcia or Javier to Sugarland and have him stretched out as a starter the entire time when yeah. they're not missing a beat, especially knowing that they're both guys that are really, really young and had plans worked out the way they were supposed to, meaning Justin Verlander never had to get UCL surgery and that Zach Grinke didn't fall off a cliff somewhere um, in May, May of 2021. I don't think either of these guys would be anywhere but Sugarland right now. And I don't think they would have come up in a non-pandemic year when you, you needed all that help all of a sudden. So they still have a lot of runway. Um, and so the Astros have to decide, do we have a window to win this year? And do we have a better chance of winning this year, having those guys in the bullpen? Or do we have a better chance winning long-term with one or both of those guys as starters in Sugarland, refining their craft, honing or getting better more experience by pitching every fifth day. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see what they do. I think the immediate need is bullpen help. I think those are your bullpen guys, but I could absolutely see a situation where uh, Pedro Baez comes back or the Astros pick up another high-end reliever and one or both of those guys go to Sugarland, not through any fault of their own, but because we're going to need them as starters at some point. And it's really hard the way Dusty Baker uses the bullpen, especially to say stay stretched out when you might not pitch, you know, for 10 days at a time. It does seem like to me, at least looking in 2021, Garcia profiles more for the bullpen. And I would probably move Javier to AAA to keep him stretched out, like you said, mostly because Javier has already shown six and seven inning stuff to be effective. Whereas Luis, like you said, so young, Right. Seems to hit a wall in the fourth or fifth almost every single start, which explains why he hadn't had a win yet. Like, I think yeah. that's that's something to consider. And his last start was really regrettable, too, because he was certainly in line for that win and did everything he could do to get it, except the bullpen didn't want him have it. Yeah. I mean, he, I guess a second to last start because he did win yeah, you're right. the other Sorry. day. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about before we go, before we go into our next segment. Um, can you please explain probably not <laughs> why you think it's important that we allow baseball to become a sport celebrated by everyone and why beat writers should just let promotions go and not care about them? You know, it, it's interesting because I don't understand and it's um, there's a history. And so maybe you have one guy who's dissatisfied with his job being posted in Houston, being the beat writer for the Astros. Maybe it's just that guy. But we've had a series of three um, beat writers who worked for the Houston Chronicle who hated the Astros franchise. And it was very apparent in the way that they carried themselves, the way they talked about the team and decisions the team made, and the way they interacted with the fans. Uh, the current beat writer, um, who I'm not even going to get into who that is, but if you're following the show, you probably know if he hasn't blocked you on Twitter, because guess what I got this morning? Um is so just such a miserable person and very clearly wants to be, you know, I guess back in Alabama, live in the heyday with Nick Saban and following that football team that somehow following a major league team is a big disappointment in his life. And yeah. he takes it out on anybody that wants to talk about the Astros with him, have anything positive to say about the Astros. And it comes across really snarky and um, just disingenuous because it's not coming from a real place other than his own internal black soul. Um, 
So, you know, you expand that to the reason you have a job is because you have this team to cover. And one of the ways they stay alive and functional is to have these kind of theme days, whether it's Star Wars Day or Bring Your Dog to the Park Day, or as in this past Sunday, Princess Day. Princess Day is absolutely a necessary promotion for major league teams. And I kind of checked and I, I lost count at about 25 because I can't count 30 evidently. But I found 25 teams that do some version of a Princess Day. And the whole point is to bring young girls to the ballpark to develop their love for baseball. And guess what? They don't get to travel by themselves. So their families come too, and they have to buy tickets and they dress up and they have fun and they sing stupid songs from Frozen that, you know, by the way, won Oscars for uh, best song. Um, and they enjoy themselves at the ballpark. And the more people who come to the ballpark for whatever reason and enjoy themselves without hurting anybody, that's good for baseball which means that's good for you if you're the beat writer because you have a job. I'm not saying he needs to promote. I'm not saying he has to agree, but understand that you don't have a future in a sport that doesn't have a future if you keep pissing on it. And, and I think, you know, I, I'll say to your point, not only does he not have to promote, doesn't have to agree with, doesn't have to like, he just didn't have to tweet. Like no one, it was completely unforced. No one said, hey, Mr. Blah, blah, blah. What do you think of Princess Night? He just did it. I have thoughts. And deleted it. I have thoughts. I have a, I have a forum for those thoughts. I don't share every one that I have. And you know why? Because some things just are better left unsaid. Let's get to presents Goodwood, knocking around the majors with Andy Tom Chesson. Okay, we are jumping back into Goodwood. Um, Andy Tom Chesson is still with us. He's going to be doing double duty periodically through the show because, well, he's one of the best to talk about the sport. First of all, um, strong like bull. Strong like bull. Andy, um, Major League Baseball took a pretty bold step, I thought, in telling um, the the Oakland Athletics that they can be prepared to move. And I think especially with growing up with Bud Adams – a little bit, but remember the Browns really doing it under the cover of darkness. Um, was were you shocked in the cold? Yeah. Were you shocked though, that the major league baseball up front said, look, it's not going to work. Uh, I think it is, you know, part bluster. And I think there's some absolute fact about it. The Oakland Coliseum or three com Coliseum or O Coliseum or whatever it's been called in the last several years uh, isn't a viable venue. You saw that when the NFL's Raiders have left for Las Vegas because they were playing at the same place. Uh, you're seeing it with the A's, and the A's have struggled um, mightily from a financial standpoint being tied to that stadium. It is not designed like the rest of the stadiums in Major League Baseball are today. It is the last of the cookie-cutter stadiums of the 70s. Uh, it was used to attract the Oakland franchise from Kansas City almost 50 years ago. Uh -huh. uh, and it hasn't been significantly upgraded since then. So, you know, I think Major League Baseball and having an interest in having a franchise, one of its 30 franchises being a viable business, has a vested interest in saying, hey, you know what, this has to get better. And if um, the ownership of the Oakland A's aren't willing to put the money up front, we have precedent that uh, cities and municipalities are willing to put up money to build those stadiums. We need that to happen. We need some plan to be put in place. And I think that's 
the shot across the bow is that if you, Oakland or Alameda County, aren't willing to do this, there are other markets who are, and we're opening negotiation. And let me just clarify here. You and I are not Mr. Everybody Needs a New Stadium guy. Um, I don't know if you've been out there, but the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim or whatever we're calling them, the Big A is a 60-year-old stadium, I think, that's beautifully maintained. So well, Oakland is a dump, and you can see it on TV. Sure. I mean, and to add to add to that, Kansas City, Kauffman Stadium is not new. It's not close to new. But if you look at the list of the best stadiums in baseball, it's constantly in the top five. And that's because it's been up. There's upkeep. There's um, amenities that have been added. There's upgrades that have happened. And it just has a certain charm. Oakland Alameda County Stadium is a dump. It has been a dump. It's been a dump since literally the 80s. So you said at first that this might be bluster. Um, how much of you thinks this is just the foot in the ass of the of the politicians in Oakland to actually make do on these plans? Because apparently the plans are really awesome to build a, a, a waterfront ballpark. Yeah, I mean, if you look at what they have proposed, it's kind of neat because the stadium in San Francisco and the stadium of, in Oakland potentially would be facing one another across the bay. Um, and and it seems like a really interesting environment and a really neat way to revitalize an area of Oakland, uh, which is a city that needs revitalization. Um, if you talk to anybody about Oakland, they need, uh, money coming into their downtown area. They need more tourist attractions. They need a lot of things to help them attract businesses, attract residents, so on and so forth. And um, I think it absolutely is a kick. I think it's also, you know, if you want to say 50-50 or 60-40, somewhere in there is this idea that Oakland or Alameda County has to do something or they're going to lose their team and they have to be aware of it. In the meantime, Oakland, City of Oakland and Alameda County have drugged their feet on this so long, I think Major League Baseball, with the prodding of the Oakland A's, have basically said we have to have an alternate plan in place because we have no idea if this is going to happen. And if it is, maybe it doesn't happen for another decade. And that's not a tenable situation for Major League Baseball. Especially because they've said that contraction is on hold until they figure out the Oakland question. Right. And then eventually the Tampa Bay question. Right. And and I think that's a, you know, a, a big part of it. You need to have a West Coast team in the American League West that's sitting there. Um, if that ends up being Vegas or Portland as one of those markets, I think that, you know, makes some geographic sense, but there needs to be baseball across the country and not centered central and Eastern time zones. And that becomes a problem. If you say Oakland, okay, great. You're going to move. And maybe you get to move to Nashville. And then you have the um, National League West of the 1965 or 1970 through 1992 season which featured one Atlanta Braves. Yeah. Okay, so you think Portland or Vegas is what makes the most sense? Which of those two do you see happening? Uh, Probably Vegas. I I think Vegas can get the money together quickest. And what we're talking about for money, just so everybody uh, understands, before all this happened, Manfred uh, let everybody know the price for entry (laughs) for a major league expansion franchise was $2.2 billion. Uh, and that lines up pretty neatly with the sale price of the Mets, who were sold in 2020 uh, to Sterling Equities and uh, Stephen Cohen for 2.4 uh, 
billion dollars, almost $2.5 billion. The Royals, who we just mentioned a minute ago, um, also sold in 2020 for $1 billion. You know, what's funny is we had Scott McIntyre, who you know well, uh, on the show at the very beginning of the season. And I had felt like um, that the pandemic and what had happened with the pandemic was actually going to make contraction happen faster. Because as you just said, you bring in two teams, that's $5 million essentially spread across the 30 existing owners. That floats a lot of boat. Does this feel like the first step in that happening? MLB stepping up and saying all of a sudden Oakland Coliseum is not tenable anymore? Uh, yeah, I think that um, I think a lot of people get guilty of this when we talk about how polarized our society is and we assume the other side is stupid. Uh, Rob Manfred's not stupid. He doesn't have stupid people working for it. They make stupid decisions. They put runners on second base and extra innings and think it's baseball. But that, that, I mean, but that doesn't necessarily make the individual stupid. And I think when it comes to money and the financial future of uh, these 30 franchises and what might potentially be 32 franchises down the line, uh, they put all their smart guys in that room, right? So it's a situation where you don't announce what the price for entry for an expansion team might be if we were to expand somewhere down the line her, 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 out there in the ether for no reason. You don't get behind the Oakland franchise because historically Major League Baseball doesn't take a stand in these things unless the team asks them to. Yeah. Um, so historically, they let the teams manage, negotiate, do all these things, and then sit as an approver of the final transaction, whether that's a sale or a new stadium or whatever. But they don't get involved in the actual negotiation, at least not publicly. For them to get involved publicly with this is a pretty big deal. And I think it is laying the ground for a, I think ideally Oakland would get its stuff together and they'd build a, build a new ballpark there and everybody would stay and be hunky dory. But there are four markets that we are aware of that have been working on putting bids together. And there are probably a couple more that we don't give enough, you know, lip service to outside. Those of four are uh, Nashville, Portland, Charlotte, and Las Vegas. Um, all triple uh, A teams currently, by the way, um, but all have major league uh, franchises uh, in other sports sitting in their cities. They can support uh, from a population standpoint, a major league uh, being a major league baseball town. So there's some good headwinds there. I think you could also add a place like San Antonio, who is a market that probably is last on that list. But, you know, if they were to get enough money together, maybe they jump up to fourth on that list or third on that list or second on that list, which is the prime spot. Second doesn't have to pay all $2.2 billion. It's like 2.1. But uh, I mean, the reality is that there are other markets in the United States that are willing to pay. And then we're not talking about Montreal who wants to have a team back, uh, which may or may not be Tampa Bay. Uh, Buffalo has been mentioned in the past as a place that a major league team could come back to because I think Buffalo had a major league team back in 18 something dickety those guys yeah um so I think there are markets I, I think there is going to be movement I also think that at some point we're going to revisit what was called in 1997 or 2004 I forget which radical realignment uh which if you're going to talk about cost savings is going to eventually do away with concepts of the American and National League and go to regional divisions 
if you get to 32 teams, you have four, you have four team divisions across the country. And if you look on a map, it, four team divisions break down a lot better than our current uh, five team divisions do. Uh, having said that, as an Astros fan, I don't think that we ever move back to a national league, but I also don't think that uh, we're gonna be playing 50% of our, or you know, 50% of our road games on the West Coast. So it's interesting, but I absolutely see a future where expansion allows a division that features the Red Sox, the Mets, the Yankees, and you know maybe one other team, whether that's the Nationals or the Blue Jays or whoever that happens to be, um, and that's one division. And you could see like uh, Houston, the Rangers, Kansas City, Colorado. Kansas City. Colorado, I mean, just yeah. and I'm picking off the top or Arizona. I I don't I don't see them splitting up the Cubs and Cardinals. Although it'd be great to see the Astros, Cubs, and Cardinals in a division. Right, and I'm and Bud Selig sold his soul to the devil to make sure that um, the Brewers will always be in a division with the Cubs and Cardinals because that's the only way that franchise survives. So you know, pick one more team out of that. Yeah. Maybe. So it's it's interesting, but I think there's a lot of things at play when you start talking about the die that's been cast in Oakland, because it's not just about Oakland, it's about four to six other cities. And it's about what the future of how professional baseball is organized or major league baseball is organized. And, and as we saw this last year, once that gets settled, then you have another trickle down into the minor leagues because then all of a sudden, well, if I'm saving money on uh, you know geographic travel uh, that makes sense in my division. Why would I want all my minor league teams? And I expect there'll be another reshuffling. I know we have 10 year contracts, but contracts that are owned by major league baseball can be renegotiated. But it also would mean that some of those teams might actually get their, some of those cities might get their teams back because if you expand, sure. you're getting eight minor league teams back. All right. Last bit. Um, a lot of uh, profile, a lot of profile, a lot of um, just pushback over the, the presence, particularly in the minor leagues, of female color commentators and play-by-play people, um, and people not afraid to look stupid on Twitter over it, man. What's your first blush? And like, at what point are we just going to accept the fact that anybody can call a baseball game? Hey, I don't – it's this weird thing that we have. A, it's misogyny, so let's just – throw that out there because it is, that's a woman. That woman can't talk about baseball. She's never played baseball. Da, 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 da. Jessica Mendoza knows more about ball sports, <laughs> just ball sports than anybody on Twitter. Uh, let's just say that. So to say that she can't be a commentator uh, on ESPN Sunday night baseball is just asinine. You may not like what she has to say. I can't stand that woman that's been doing play-by-play for the Yankees for a, a while. I can't even remember her name because I just blocked it out because she's not great, but she still has that job. Uh, so she's probably more qualified for it than I am. I, I think it's we're beyond the point because you could take this back. I don't know. What is this? 2021. So 50 years and say in the early 1960s, well, you'd never have a black man doing color baseball, color commentary on a baseball game. Cause what do they know about playing the sport? They've only been in it for 13 years. I mean, that's the kind of mentality that we're talking about. Um, it's if I don't have a older white gentleman explaining baseball to me, then I'm not getting the full experience. And, and it's just asinine. It, it's it's limited scope of what the reality of the world is. 
It's people wanting to live in their own bubbles. It's very much akin. It's a cousin to people getting freaked out when Latin American players do bat flips or strut off the mound. It's I don't want to see people that make me uncomfortable doing things that make me uncomfortable. And that that is, I mean, that's literally what it is because there's no other justification for not having qualified people. And you have a bunch of them on your show, uh, whether it's Emma Tiedemann or uh, a couple of the others, who's Melanie Lyman, uh, who are qualified to have those jobs, who have worked their asses off to have those jobs. And they are just as, if not more qualified than most of the people who already hold those jobs. And so absolutely, they should be given the chance to succeed. Yeah, I think the, you, you, bring, you bring up the interesting, you know, I don't want to get into the weeds of more or less qualified, but I do think that there is, I think the wrong headed thought that they somehow got the jobs just because they're women, when in fact, I would imagine they have to work a lot harder to break through a boys club to even get the opportunity to get that job. Yeah, if that if it was the case that they only got the job because they're a female, you'd have a lot more of them. The fact that we're still talking about somebody uh, who is the reporter um, for the Baltimore Orioles as the one. Yeah. And everything she does happens to be the first time this happened. Uh, tells you that it's not a situation where a lot of people are getting jobs just because of their gender or just because it's the female gender. Um, and that that. I mean, that ultimately is the issue is that if it were something that they were just handing out jobs based on somebody being a woman, you'd have 30 of those jobs open and not one or two of them. Uh, and you have one or two of them right now. And it's a bunch of grumpy old white men that are, you know, upset about it because they can't understand why they didn't get the job because, you know, they send out great tweets once every month. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you know, it's funny, Andy, we're going to drop this later on this week, but you and I will, will see each other uh, in person beforehand. As, as long as the rain holds off, we'll be at Sugarland's home opener as the AAA affiliate of the Astros. Looking forward to it. And now on to close it out, the right-hander from Houston, Texas, James Christopher. So thanks, everybody, for joining Let's Get To. That does wrap up the episode. We had a great night down here at Dr. Pepper Ballpark in Frisco, Texas. I can't tell you how much better it was to be here at 80 degrees as opposed to 120. I'm even wearing sleeves. We had a great night here tonight. You can see that the mask mandates are starting to dial back. Things are starting. What is happening? Do we have a play? Do we have a triple? Well, we had an RBI, it looks like, and then a bad base running decision on the on the, the behalf of the Riders. No, never make the last out at third, everybody. That's baseball 101. Anyway, we had a great time here at Dr. Pepper Ballpark. I highly recommend if you're in the area to get out here. And hopefully things are starting to feel a little bit normal. The mass mandates are getting dialed back. I think everything's feeling safer. So get out to a ballpark, get some peanuts, get some Cracker Jack, and most importantly, let's get to it.